All right, Kuba, can you hear me? I can hear you uh, loud and clear. And I, you, so we're we're good. All right, I am now joined uh, by Kuba Wisniewski, uh better known to uh, viewers and listeners of This Is Revolution podcast as uh, Deep State Kuba. Uh, and uh, somebody who knows a lot about geopolitics and specifically the context of Eastern Europe and uh, is also a friend of mine, despite which I keep on asking him to expose himself to this platform where anybody who wants to can call in to furiously denounce him. But how are you doing today, Kuba? Um, Undenounced so far. Um... Well, so far, let's see how it goes. Uh, so, so you know, in the past, uh, especially, you know, in the sort of earlier phases of the war, you came on to do several of these. And it strikes me that um, it's been a while since we did one. And in, um, and, you know, I think that in, in certain ways, maybe, um you know, our collective attention span might be uh, might be frayed a little bit as far as Americans paying attention to this uh, this proxy war that you know we're we're continued to be very very deeply involved in. Uh, really far for the course. Uh, foreign mm-hmm. affairs fatigue sets in pretty quickly, um, even if it's uh, a white country that produces a lot of uh, mail order brides. Uh, <laughs> Sure. So. Yeah, I, I mean, this is actually kind of a structural problem with interventionism that um, the, you know, people, you know, that you might intervene truly or or allegedly on behalf of uh, don't have any mechanism for, for holding the interveners accountable and domestic populations in the intervening state, you know, just, just don't... Um, you know, don't maintain their interest uh, forever. So, you know, I, I think uh, that's, you know, the way that this plays out uh, in, you know, going forward uh, with, with that. I mean, I think, I think there's a, there's a real danger there possibly uh, for, uh, for Ukrainians, but we can get into all that. But meanwhile, just, just give us some sense of what's been going on. Uh, Kuba, gotta uh, unmute yourself. Somebody sent a note in the chat, and um, I re- responded to it. And then there's five different menus that I have to back out of before I can uh, access any controls. <laughs> um, innovation, innovation at best. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so um, there's been a number of uh, setbacks for Russia. Uh, most recently and most spectacularly, there was their um, unilateral withdrawal from Kherson, the only Oblast capital that they captured and that they held for most of the war. But they given up that territory without um, a decisive battle, instead withdrawing their sources, uh, their forces to the other side. Yep. Mm-hmm. On the um, strategic front. Uh, Russia has been degrading civilian infrastructure across Ukraine. Uh, water and electricity are out. Winter is, is here, and the population is suffering considerably. But as is often the case with this kind of indiscriminate um, strategic uh, bombing, rather than breaking uh, Ukrainian will, um, national uh, feeling, national sentiment, uh, anti-Russian mm-hmm. sentiment is stronger in uh, Ukraine than ever, especially since there's a feeling that even if final victory is remote, uh, things are going the right way for uh, Ukraine in this conflict. Mm-hmm. During one particular barrage uh, against uh, targets in uh, western Ukraine, there was an explosion on the Polish side of the border. Uh, the munitions killed two local people, 
uh, munitions and Russian markings on them, but that means little. Uh, much of the weaponry on the Ukrainian side is also Russian produced or Ukrainian produced, but obviously the, the language would be Russian, alphabet Cyrillic. And ended up being, uh, well, there were accusations that this was a Russian strike or a Russian missile that went on mm -hmm. target. It developed that this was a Ukrainian anti-missile missile that uh, failed to self-destruct and instead landed in Poland. Uh, this hasn't significantly changed Polish attitude, which remained strongly pro-Ukrainian and anti-Russian. Mm -hmm. um, but it did precipitate an uh, interesting intra-NATO um, tip where uh, Germany offered a Patriot missile system for deployment in Poland that could be used against incoming projectiles. Poland turned that down instead proposing that the system go to Ukraine. And uh, that created some consternation since it would be a uh, another NATO transfer um, into uh, an active war zone where in theory NATO is only uh, a supplier, uh, only a, a sort of passive supporter, well in reality uh, it's offered significant capabilities that have been uh, deployed lethally by Ukrainians against Russian forces. Also these kinds of weapon systems often require crews from the donating country would mm -hmm. potentially mean Germans or other NATO nationals uh, operating the weapon uh, in Ukraine. That, also, that always creates a potential escalation point if anything happens to uh, those uh, crews. Right. So uh, right now, uh, Russia continues its mobilization. Uh, it has not deployed a significant amount of the approximately 300,000 um, reservists that it's mobilized. Uh, what I've been thinking for a while is that they're um, collecting for a major counteroffensive uh, either in January or in early spring to try to uh, retake territories and change the momentum of the war. Uh, a later offensive might be more strategically advantageous for Russia because it can see to what extent its um, energy strategy uh, is softening up um, NATO partners. That's about where things stand. Uh, there have been no uh, breakthroughs in terms of negotiations or peace process. Russia at this point can't stomach to accept a, a loss while uh, Ukrainians that perceive themselves as winning the war, winning a righteous war, uh, have no desire to uh, come to the come to peace talks where at best they can accept uh, a pre-war status quo. Right. Um, which yeah, so so I, I do want to get into you know what the Ukrainian war goals could be at this point if if it's not ultimately going to be you know something like the pre-war status quo. But first, you mentioned uh, the Russian energy strategy, and this is um, I mean this is a big question, right? Because like how bad are the consequences for you know Germans, for example, right now? of, uh, you know, of not, uh, of not getting, you know, uh, not getting Russian oil, like, 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 like how, you know, how bad is that as we get further into the winter and how big a deal is that going to be? Already the, um, there's been, uh, massive spikes in energy prices across, um, Western Europe and, in the case of Germany, where 
a great deal of the economy depends on different forms of energy intensive heavy industry, this has put the, the whole country in a bind. If you um, parcel out scarce energy resources to keep industry going, you can sustain incomes and employment, but at the cost of um, consumer distress. And under these conditions, there's the real potential that it won't just be Ukrainians um, or poor Europeans freezing this winter, but it could be people, uh, lower income people in some of the core EU countries. Um, if Germany opts for the other strategy, namely um, giving preferential access to energy for consumers and letting industry take a hit, then the consequences might be a kind of rolling deindustrialization that um, begins over the winter and uh, takes root um, next year. The Germany relies heavily on exports of um, manufactured goods for its trade balance, for its economic growth. Um, once you factor in price increases because of those energy costs, then uh, German exports become uh, much more challenging to market internationally, especially since some of the countries competing with Germany, um, notably China, um, don't have to deal with the same energy supply disruption as um, Western Europeans. Yeah, I mean, that's really grim. And it's uh, it, to the point that it actually makes it kind of amazing that um, that, you know, Germany and other Western European nations have have stuck to their guns on this uh, and, uh, and continued to, um, you know, and, and continued to uh, to, you know, to boycott uh, Russian uh, Russian energy. But well, not to. Um, you, yeah, the, please. Uh, the destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline, for instance, has put uh, taking the question out of. European hands, yeah. even if they wanted to um, reverse the uh, sanctions on Russian energy, it would take a while to repair the infrastructure and get enough supply going into Europe. Uh, there's also a certain self-licking ice cream cone side of this, where um, the war is bad for energy supply, but great for arms demand. And you might not need those uh, foreign markets as much if um, NATO uh, governments are basically taking out uh, the national credit card and spending, um, deficit spending, enormous amounts on remilitarization. So in that way, I think that COVID and to a certain extent, the, the stimulus that came after the 2008 financial crisis, <clears throat> at least in the early phase with bailouts of financial institutions, sets a bit of a precedent for the government response here where you can try to deficit spend your way um, out of the immediate crisis with um, absorbing higher prices, but there is a physical limit to how far you can go just because of the, um, the specific shortage of energy. Sure. Um, yeah. Okay. I do want to. I do want to get back to the question we, we we sort of did earlier about what the sort of um, now that they have been as successful as they are, what you know, the Ukrainian war goals look like. But let's put a pin in that for a second because we have a call. Uh, Mateo, what's on your mind? How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Excellent. So. Um... I'm back like eight months later and it looks like 
David Sachs is still trying to do the Putin propaganda, despite the fact that Putin has been losing everywhere on every front. And despite the fact that the whole threat that Putin had in terms of energy supplies and its effect on German industry has now been mostly defanged and Europe has figured out the energy crisis that was Putin's only weapon. Yet all the propagandists on Colin, like Aaron Mate, are still doing their same old bullshit. Why is this? Well, I'm not very familiar with uh, either. I mean, I know who... I know who both of those people are. Uh, I don't like Aaron Mate very much. He doesn't really like me. All I know about David Sachs is that, uh, you know, he's like uh, uh, he's a he's a right wing rich person. That's that's I think the the sum total of my knowledge of him. Um, but um, but but Q, I, I mean, I think it might be a more interesting discussion if you went into like a little bit more detail about like what specifically those guys you're talking about are saying. Uh, also. Uh, could you uh, be a little bit more specific about platform for a variety of right wing bullshit, but mostly to do propaganda? Sorry, 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 but, but, but Mateo, you, uh, I think we missed the earlier part of your sentence. But also, let's just let's just get Cuba's interjection, and then let's go back to you. Uh, so, uh, I'd be curious to hear. Um, why you think the Europeans have figured out the the energy? shortage there um so uh, i'd be very interested in what you have to say oh uh well you know i don't think they've necessarily figured it out and that permanently there was obviously an arrangement where cheap natural gas supported kind of german uh, mercantilism in a way that was hard to sustain and there's definitely you know i think it's environmentally tragic that uh, LNG, you know, is going to need to fill the gap to some degree, uh, whether or not the U.S. and the U.S. energy industry was acting in bad faith in that way is hard to say. But when you look at it, I mean, the whole the whole reason that uh, that Putin felt so free to interfere with American politics is because the American energy industry has always been basically the same thing as the GOP. So when you take energy executives like Rex Tillerson with a long background working with Putin and Igor Sechin, kind of doing a merger where the GOP and the energy industry and the Russian state are kind of all working with the GOP, that seemed to work out. Now, unfortunately, of course, a lot of times these arrangements, you know, come to a head when there is some friction and some fiction. Some friction was obviously presented by the fact that Putin's need for genocidal violence and the bigotry that he's inculcated amongst the Russian people of seeing, uh, of seeing Ukrainians as a non-culture, as a non-language, as, as an inferior culture, as an enemy people, unfortunately meant the breakdown of that alliance between the Russian state, uh, as presented by dictator Putin, and the U.S. energy industry. So I think what we're seeing right now with, with this David Sachs project on Colin is kind of an attempt to put together some kind of neo-authoritarianism without that connection between the U.S. energy industry and the Russian state. And that's why you get clowns like Aaron Maté and a bunch of other hysterics like Glenn Greenwald kind of randomly spewing garbage as that alliance dies and as Russia becomes irrelevant to the European future and becomes just another Chinese satellite, much like North Korea. Now, the question really is when, do, when does the bad faith psychopath, propagandist like David Sachs, when does an anti-American element like David Sachs, who invades America, who invades America like Rupert Murdoch invaded America, who invaded America like Elon Musk invades America and takes advantage of our good nature, when do they hang it up? When do they hang up a platform like this, a platform like Colin, which is dedicated almost purely towards that kind of propaganda? When does it end? Well, so so I do want to say a couple things about that, but one is just to just to kind of stay keep the eye on the ball for a second here. We never actually really heard about what the resolution was to to the energy crisis. So, I mean, I assume that you're uh, that you dispute what you know Cuba's analysis earlier that the um, that you know Germany, for example, is faced with this this really difficult choice about. Um, 
sort of letting, um, you know, prioritizing consumers in ways that could have really bad effects on German industry this winter, sort of prioritizing, uh, prioritizing industry in, in, in ways that could have, you know, bad, you know, humanitarian effects for poor people in their own country about home heating and all of that. Uh, so I assume you, you disagree with that, but I didn't, if there was an implicit answer to why you disagreed, I didn't, I didn't quite hear it earlier. So, so I would like to go back to that, but also, um, yeah, I mean, look, all, all platforms are owned, <laughs> are owned by either rich people or corporations whose politics are not my politics. Uh, you know, he, uh, you know, I have a Twitter account that's, that's owned by Elon Musk. I have a show on YouTube, uh, that's owned by Google. Uh, they all suck. Uh, all the people who own all these platforms suck. Uh, you know, but I mean, you brought up Colin several times. So, I mean, if, if, um, you know, I think that there are people with a lot of different politics who, uh, you know, who have shows on here. Um, I mean, I assume that the reason you're bringing that up is, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not just random, right. That, you know, that you're sort of trying to make a statement that's a little more specific and maybe we could hear that. Cause like, again, I don't know. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't, <laughs> you know, uh, you brought up, uh, you know, you brought up two people whose politics are definitely not very much like like mine in various ways. Aaron Mate and David Sachs. Well, you're um, not you're not a fascist propagandist that works for Vladimir Putin, unlike Aaron Mate and David Sachs, who are two fascist propagandists propagandists that work for Vladimir Putin. When of course they're not working for Chi, right? Yeah, I, I mean, so so again, I don't, you know, I mean, like, I, I think it would. So so I do want to go back to the energy. Um, you know, the energy point, but also like, you know, since, uh, you know, we agree as a baseline <laughs> that, uh, you know, uh, sort of dislike for all these people, their politics. So, so oh, I, well, I don't necessarily more, like, dislike them. I, I could like someone that works for Putin or someone that looks for Chi or works for Chi because I'm a very open-minded person. So I'm, I'm okay, a very, well, very so, unusual person in that sense. And that I don't just because sure. woman is my enemy as a nationality in terms of my passport or an enemy in terms of my ideology doesn't mean that I will work with them or, or that I think they're a bad person on the whole. Sure. But the, the, I think the larger point, you know, is I, I think the more, the more specific, the sort of claims that we're talking about are like, okay, what's a thing that, you know, that these people are saying. And then, you know, since you're not talking to them, you're talking to me, but we can at least have a discussion about those things. But I, I do want to give you a chance um, before we, before we go on to, uh, to at least address the, you know, the energy point, because that sounded like it might be a sort of specific disagreement, not with like Mate or Sachs, but like with, um, you know. Well, I don't, I don't think Aaron Mate is bright enough to understand that he effectively works for the energy industry in the U.S. when he works for Putin. I don't think I don't think he's intelligent enough to really see all that. Now, I think in terms of the, the mercantile aspect with Germany, obviously Germany's leveraging of cheaper energy inputs into manufacturing and obviously some of the margins that they've been accustomed to having to that, and obviously some of the kind of mercantile arrangement or export-based arrangement, um, and, you know, the bigger thy neighbor part of that with currency games that go with it, obviously that is not, that's not a, a sustainable thing for Germany going forward in terms of what they've expected. And obviously you can see the U.S. is playing a very cynical game in terms of... But do you, do you, of, think, do you think they're going to be okay at least this winter specifically? Yeah, I mean, I think I think we've come to see as a reality pretty much the only response that Putin has, you know, in terms of the utter failure of his ability to, to field a modern military, his utter failure to keep his own young men in the country and not run away as much as they can to keep, you know, the brain drain from being a, a complete, complete wipeout. Uh, you know, his only weapon is pretty much saying horror stories about an energy shortage causing a collapse of Europe, about use of nuclear weapons, because that's the only card that he can play. And so that's what you hear coming out of the low IQ mouths of people like Aaron Mate. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just, I just, I just that, like, 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 like every, I, every interaction I've, I've had with Aaron Mate has been unpleasant, but also he's not here. And, uh, and I don't, I don't actually know that much about him. I don't, I don't, I don't. Well, there's, don't a buzz, know. there's a dozen personalities on Colin that are basically a proxy for that. And that will do the Putin, the, the Putin. Okay. okay, know, okay but, story, but, but, like, let's story. just, let's just keep this a little bit more interesting by talking not about anybody who's not here, who, 
might also be on the same platform. I mean, might as well like sort of come on the YouTube show and talk about anybody else was a show on YouTube. Like right. the, I think the more interesting discussion is going to be centered on the sort of discussion here. Right. So, so I think that it seemed like you did have, I think a substantive dispute with, uh, with, with Cuba's analysis on the, the energy crisis, but uh, let, let's just do kind of one last round through this. Yeah, like, sure. I mean, I think I think the main way to look at to understand the way the energy crisis has been used, and this is this is actually a really confusing point. So you know, uh, Jeffrey Epstein was with Mohammed bin Salman in 2016 on the night of the election, and he was in Saudi Arabia in 2016, and he had an expired Saudi passport from the 90s, probably because he spotted Mohammed bin Salman as kind of an interesting way to to leverage a presence inside the Saudi royal family, one that, that absolutely paid off. You know, MBS was not seen as a likely candidate to the Saudi throne as of a dozen years ago. And part of what was really going on there is part of what we saw with the relationship of uh, people like Jared Kushner and Epstein with the royal family. It represented a new axis where right-wing Likudniks and people that were associated with things like the mega group in the U.S., um, politicians that or entities that were pro-Israel that wanted to leverage the U.S. political system as much as possible had entered into an alliance with people like Mohammed bin Salman and uh, MBZ and Alfani, other characters that were kind of rising authoritarians from the Arab world. And what happened with the Trump coup was effectively an alliance, an axis of those energy industry uh, characters combined with things like um, Erdogan's influence through corrupt entities like Brian Ballard and Florida politics all around to kind of create a coalition behind Trump. And this coalition was basically a supercharged version of the. Oh, uh, I think we might've lost you, Mateo. I'm not quite sure what happened there, but um, uh you know, I, I would uh, I would say before we go to to Byron, uh, who's uh, who's the next who's the next caller, who's on now. Um, uh, one, <laughs> I don't know what technical difficulties happened there before we went to Byron, but there might be a lesson here about succinctness. Uh, but two, I, I I think that as as far as sort of telling a story about Trump with all of this. Uh, and, and I do want to kind of throw back to Cuba here before Byron, uh, it, it might be worth saying that one of the ironies of all of this is that even though this is sort of often forgotten because it doesn't really fit anybody's narratives very well, um, Trump was actually a way bigger anti-Russia hawk than Obama was. Uh, Trump sent heavy weaponry to Ukraine, which uh, which the GOP had criticized Obama for not doing. Uh, and, you know, you can see plenty of clips of Trump uh, denouncing Germany for uh, for its uh, energy reliance on Russia uh, while he was uh, while he was president, you know, and he was like really aggressively opposed to that pipeline. But uh, I want to hear from Cuba, and then we'll go to Byron. So the um, I think that I'm not going to be able to draw those kinds of connections between. Um, different international elements on the right and where they stand uh, towards Putin or um, the United States um, or whether there's some kind of coordinated um, authoritarian international. Uh, I think that was that's the term that uh, Hillary Clinton coined or at least popularized. Uh, I think that the um, you have to look at the interests of uh, different countries and, and also different um, powerful figures within uh, Western economies and try to uh, parse what they might be, how they might benefit from this kind of disruption. So there are some reactionary forces that uh, like Putin or benefit from a strong Russia. There are others who um, actually are very pleased with this kind of reinvigorated uh, U.S. militarism. And the, the fact that 
the United States, which has been on the defensive when it comes to foreign policy ever since the Iraq War, um, is now able to put that kind of uh, doubt and self-reflection on hold while they have what uh, they consider to be a, a very clean and righteous conflict that they can be a part of. And as for what this means for um, the conflict itself, it's very dangerous when you have um, powerful parties with an interest in prolonging um, war. That more than um, more than tactical reversals can um, really prolong a conflict. Uh, and all the more so in systems like the United States where there's uh, different vectors for um, elite influence in uh, policy making. Well, this is, this is actually so, okay. So, so my apologies, Byron, let's just, let's just wait just a minute. We'll, we'll pull this thread before we go to you. Uh, but, but this does get into what I sort of put a pin in earlier. So just to, to yank out the pin, um, I am curious, you know, because you said something that made sense earlier, which is that, you know, from the Ukrainian perspective, since they're, um, you know, they're, they're certainly they're they're winning all of these, uh, even though the humanitarian effects of um, of Russian attacks on the you know civilian infrastructure are pretty bad. Uh, they're, they're still won enough battlefield victories and what they see as righteous war that it's it's. Uh, it's going to be very hard to uh, to sort of have much momentum towards towards stopping and uh, and and de-escalating and going towards uh, towards peace talks anytime soon. But then there's an obvious question there about what that means about what the end game actually is, uh, because if um, if it was uh, if it was to sort of return to the you know pre-February status quo it seems like um that that's more or less been accomplished um if it's uh but then if it's sort of maximalist ukrainian nationalist goals uh that uh like you know t retaking 100% of the donbas or or you know or even on the outer edges of it you know re retaking crime you know crimea uh then that seems unlikely to happen anytime soon. So, I mean, if, if you wanted to just before we go to Byron, I mean, just, just kind of speak to that briefly, like what is like from a Ukrainian perspective right now, I mean, what, what is, what is victory look like and when could that actually be achieved? I, okay. So uh, from the, um, from the 2014 um, coup against uh, Yanukovych and the uh, buildup of the NATO-Ukraine relationship. The um, NATO has always pushed for um, the recapture of Crimea as a Ukrainian uh, strategic goal, even when mm -hmm. there was less appetite for that within Ukraine. So. I think that the victory conditions for Ukraine um, at this point are um, the return to the post-Soviet borders, including all of Donbass, including Ukraine, and probably um, a generous um, reparations package to uh, help uh, post-war uh, reconstruction um, coming from um, the Russian treasury, maybe in the form of subsidized or discounted energy. Um, that's going to be the um, initial position. And you can probably bargain down the subsidy. At this stage, I don't think you can um, dissuade uh, Ukraine from insisting on Crimea. Um, 
the mechanism that would potentially deliver that kind of outcome would be the collapse of the Putin government, possibly the Russian state itself. And that's happened before. Uh, World War One saw the um, destruction of Imperial Russia as a result of a long grinding conflict. Uh. And um, there are there's a, a brittleness to uh, the Russian political economy. Um, but the same kind of pressure, it, it's, it's ironic because going into the war, the perception of many observers was that Russia might win on the battlefield in just due to superior forces and um, the, the relative weakness of Ukrainian units. But once sanctions began to bite, once it was cut off from uh, the world financial and, and trade systems, then uh, Russia would uh, collapse economically, and that would be the uh, that would be the potential source for um, for a, a Ukrainian uh, Ukrainian survival. But uh -huh. what we're seeing is actually the reverse that. Ukrainians are quite capable tactically and operationally, um, much more so than, um, you know, they've overperformed, Russian forces have underperformed, but on that economic uh, front, that's where uh, Russia has proven significantly more resilient than uh, observers expected. The Russian economy is not in a position where people are going to be freezing to death that I have to say this, like wouldn't already be freezing to death. Yeah. And they've um, managed to maintain their uh, connection to um, markets and commodities in the global South. Um, they've kind of broken open the um, sanctions cage that was supposed to be a global um, multi multilateral effort and instead it's basically a limited rich country western oriented cluster of uh, of states that have um, shut out russia uh, so i don't know where the um where the crumbling would begin if uh, Russian society or economy were to break down. Um, and I also don't know where a anti-Putin movement uh, within the networks that matter uh, might take root. The Right now, there might be members of the Russian elite that see him as a potentially dangerous liability, mm -hmm. but he has survived so long by concentrating power in his hands and delegating only to individuals that have um, some kind of personal dependency on him. So it's not as though there's a Ron DeSantis in Yakutia <laughs> right, right. that's just waiting for his uh, his opportunity to to knock down the king uh, so i don't know what the next turn is in this conflict um unfortunately this type of situation um, of an extremely destructive war that um doesn't seem to have uh, a clear outcome or endpoint with nobody talking peace this is an equilibrium that you can be stuck in for a long time uh, on chapo they're dedicating an entire uh, series to the 30 years war in europe and we might be seeing the revival of similar long drawn out multi-sided conflicts which uh, also to those who um, decry American 
unilateralism and the position of the United States as a global hegemon. Yeah. Uh, this is one of the downsides of multipolarity. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, different, the difference between uh, a unipolar world of American imperial hegemony and, and, uh, and our uh, brave new world of emerging multipolarity is roughly the difference between having, um, I don't know, some like sociopathic gangster, Pablo Escobar or something, somebody uh, running a neighborhood and, and in often cruel and capricious ways and having several different rival gangs uh, vying for uh, for control of the neighborhood and uh, regularly doing drive-by shootings of each other on crowded street corners. Uh, it's um, both are bad, but it's uh, it's not uh, it's not obvious to me that this is an improvement. But in any case, let's. Uh, uh, Byron has been on hold for a long time, so uh, I do want to get to I do want to get to him. Byron, what is on your mind? Hey there, thank you. I'll I'll try and be brief. Um to have the other callers give their opinion. But um, it was interesting what Matteo said about uh, Trump and Jared Kushner. I'm still mm-hmm. looking into that. But what I do know is that um, when Trump was in office, uh, we didn't have the war in Ukraine. I know that Russia was doing having some border conflicts, but here's here's my take on it. Yep. I'm looking at uh, from World War II up to the Cold War, um, the America and the Soviet Union – which is now Russia, the Russian Federation, uh, they didn't directly attack each other. Mm-hmm. They basically went after – America basically went after communism. And there were, you know, there were some false flags that they did. You, know, you can look up some of the false flags like the Gulf of Tolkien where they said, oh, the, the Vietnam attacked us, so we need to go in there and attack them. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, we, we basically install our banking system in these countries that we take down, like uh, in Libya, oh, Gaddafi's attacking his own people. We need to get in there, take him out, and then install our banking system. And America did a lot of this in the, in the Cold War. They installed their banking systems. You can't, you, you can't just go in and take a country. You have to basically own the country through financial systems. Uh, the Soviet Union went into countries and tried to conquer them and take them over. But um, I think it was in Europe when they had the Iron Curtain, people basically fought back and, you know, and, and got back control of their country. But uh, what I think is going on with Ukraine and, and uh, Russia and the Americans. So this is my take, and you guys could tell me if I'm wrong or right. Yep. But I yep. think that uh, I think that America, whether Ukraine wins or loses, Ukraine still loses. Because if Ukraine wins this war – they're in a debt system to the Americas and America. I don't know you can fact check this. They're saying it's wrong, but I I believe America bought up a lot of acres of farmland, millions of acres of farmland in Ukraine. And uh, basically the Ukrainian people have to pay back all this financing that they're getting from the Americans. So they're basically in debt. So America owns Ukraine. Now, if they lose, then Russia owns Ukraine. But either way, and, and this is why I think when, when Trump said that this would have never happened, it's because um, Putin would have never gotten the green light to go in. But I think since Putin got the green light to go in, he went in. Uh, and sorry, then immediately, you, I, I'm just going to cut you off here, Kiss. What, what, could, you just, could you just say what you mean by the green light to go in? Green light from who? Like from, from our government. Like if you go in and take some land, we're not going to retaliate. Okay, so so that's – I, I think I've get I think I've got the picture. Uh, so I do want to give Cuba a chance to respond to all that, but first, uh, I want. Oh, sorry, I actually did not mean to cut you off. I'd, I'd had the, uh, I'd done that before, <laughs> before you, uh, uh, before uh, before you uh, you started to say that. In fact, actually, Thomas, if you call back in in just a second, I'm going to take. Uh, Byron back for just a second to say whatever he said he was he was about to say he was just going to say so uh, so Thomas please do call back in. thank you very uh, much thank you By- Byron what were you yeah I say? just want to finish my point so um, sure so the thing is Quick. like when when I say he got the green light uh, like with Crimea he took Crimea and we didn't retaliate right. I think we did retaliate. Um, we did retaliate now because, and this is why I believe you can look this up. Putin said to a lot of the Democrats, you're not my friend anymore and you're banned from my country because we're retaliating. We're trying to take Ukraine for ourselves. So it's like two countries trying to take Ukraine 
and Ukraine's a victim. So that's that's what I said with with the green light. Um, and okay. Yeah. Thank you. Well, all right. So I do want to give uh, Kuba a chance to uh, to respond to all that, but uh, first uh, let's uh, first let's take uh, Thomas. And uh, we can get in what he has to say, and then we can uh, can turn it over to Kuba to respond to any combination of uh, what both of them have to say that he wants to. But uh, Thomas, what is on your mind? Oh, cool. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, okay, I wrote this down so I can. Uh, it's I'll be. It's very brief. Um, yep. Excellent. Okay. So far, we have seen various responses by the left to the war in Ukraine. For instance, various left groups siding with Russia, Ukraine, or NATO on the basis of quote-unquote anti-imperialism, anti-fascism, or national self-determination. We've also seen the squad call for peace negotiations and DSA Jackman call for an end to U.S. arms sales to Ukraine and a denunciation of both Russia and NATO's actions, which isn't really beyond what capitalist policy debates are already saying. Taking into consideration the old slogan of turning the imperialist war into a civil war, how do these reactions reflect on the left or its absence? Okay. I think, I think I've got you. Um, I mean, my, uh, you know, my first thought about that, that last part in particular is that um, uh, obviously, you know, for better or worse, the United States and uh, you know, Western Europe, et cetera, in 2022 are not, in anything like a pre-revolutionary situation, uh, like much of Europe was in uh, World War One, when in fact there were um, attempted or successful socialist revolutions in various countries uh, as the uh, as the war was closing out, and then the years immediately afterward. And I don't I don't think that primarily has anything to do with the left. I think that there are larger material conditions at play that you know that that no version of the left uh, could will into existence. But that'd be my main thought about that. Um, let's just, uh, for the sake of, of making sure I'm not, I'm not missing anybody. Let's just, let's just throw, uh, let's just throw Scott into the mix also. Uh, so let me, um, let me take, uh, Scott. What is, uh, what is on your mind, Scott? Hey, Ben, I'll, I'll, I'll spare you my, uh, my conspiracy theories and my hyperbole, but, uh, my question is more philosophical, <laughs> uh, yeah. is, you know, when I when I don't get an opportunity to debate people who are supportive of the war outside of the internet, uh, do uh, you know the the accusation is often um, that any pro peace or anti war uh, gets get, I you know you will be accused of appeasement. Of, right. That's why the the CPC was was admonished and. Um, it's mm -hmm. hard for me. like I get the argument of mm -hmm. you know that Putin started an illegal war. He shouldn't be rewarded. He shouldn't be able to um, uh, gain from that. But the real, real the reality of the situation is that you know in order for things to calm down, there's going to have to be give and take on both sides. So I was wondering it, um, about kind of the philosophical aspect of being pro-peace versus appeasement and the arguments there. Does that make sense? It does make sense, yeah. Uh, so I certainly have stuff to say about this, but meanwhile, we, we have um, we've had a few different points of view about all of this, uh, and I want to give Kuba uh, a chance to respond to anything that sort of catches his interest to respond to out of anything the callers have said. Well, uh, let me start by going back to the point that Byron was making. Uh, I think mm -hmm. that uh, I think that he's entirely correct that no matter what the outcome, uh, Ukraine is going to be a, a big loser. Uh, there's one potentially optimistic scenario in which uh, the war might accelerate EU admission. And which would materially benefit Ukrainians, um, and it would tremendously facilitate uh, Ukrainian re personal reconstruction. But the more likely outcome is if Ukraine 
uh, in its current form, uh, survives the war, uh, potentially even gets a favorable peace, then even if it gets all of its uh, territorial demands met, including Crimea, yeah. you, you're promised the EU, but you get NATO. That's been the case for a number of former communist uh, countries. And the EU process, even when there's a good faith um, effort on the part of the EU to uh, welcome and facilitate, you have to incorporate tens of thousands of pages of um, European regulations and um, legal documents into your own legal system. Then you have to build up bureaucracies and state institutions that can actually enforce those kinds of regulations. Uh, that's going to be a very long walk for Ukraine. And I think that uh, a much more likely outcome would be a type of uh, limbo, which makes it vulnerable to the sort of neoliberal depredation uh, that Byron was alluding to through financial uh, I'm not going to get into the details of how those operate, but uh, it's certainly true that the dollar-based world financial system uh, is a very effective tool for uh, Western governments to apply pressure, uh, especially on weaker poorer states like Ukraine. The, so I think that uh, Byron is, is onto something there. I can't speak about the farmland. Uh, that's not something that uh, I've read about, so uh, I'll leave it there. But Ukraine, from a strictly material perspective, is not a poor country. It has um, a significant industrial base. It has significant resources. Um, it was once the breadbasket of Europe uh, because of the quality of its soil the amount of arable land, clean water that, um, that the country possesses. So it is a prize. And um, whether it's incorporated into a Western economic structure or a Russian one, there will be advantages to whichever imperial power dominates it um, with uh, consequences for um, regular Ukrainians. What may happen in terms of um, sort of making the pill easier to swallow might be that Ukraine does not get EU admission, but among the millions of Ukrainian refugees that have um, settled in Europe, they'll be granted some kind of fast track to citizenship so that is a means of alleviating pressure. And then you can get their remittances going back to Ukraine. Um, of course, with a Greek style austerity, um, imposed uh, austerity, that would, you know, those would be round trip remittances going to Kiev just to go back to, to Brussels or Frankfurt or other European financial centers. And when it comes to what the left should do and the sort of philosophy of um, of peace versus uh. appeasement, I um, my perspective is that um, when it comes to international affairs, there's no point in trying to find a morally or philosophically uh, mm -hmm. consistent or uh, satisfying position because those are considerations that simply don't come into play. Um, it's a, there may have been a moment in the 90s where uh, some kind of multilateral framework for resolving security disputes might have been generated and we may have moved towards that kind of liberal internationalist vision of um, resolving uh, international 
crises through collective uh, decision making. But at this point, whether it's uh, unipolar American hegemony or uh, multipolarity of international gangsterism, you have ruthless, self-interested actors um, behaving in bad faith to yeah. uh, secure their interests. The If there were a left, which there isn't, Right. But if there were a left that was a participant in uh, shaping the uh, politics of either within Western societies, um, within Russia, or uh, internationally, then um, the the role would be to put pressure on um, state governments to. Um, basically knock off the bad faith warmongering and um, clip the influence of things like weapons manufacturers or other war lobbies. Because there is no left, um, it it's kind of, you're at liberty, right? Um, one of the few consolations of not mattering in the least is that, um, you can do what you want, uh, since whatever you do will have the same impact on uh, the war in Ukraine, which is nothing. Um, if people have an individual uh, commitment to um, Ukrainian independence, or if they have a humanitarian impulse to um, volunteer, especially in medical or, or support capabilities where they're not part of, they're not adding to the violence of the conflict. I think that's laudable. Um, if you can help people who are suffering, you should, right? Or uh, I won't go, I won't make couches as an imperative, but it is a good thing to sure. help people who are suffering. Um, <clears throat> but um, the even pushing for uh, negotiations, like with the uh, Congressional Progressive Caucus letter. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when neither party is interested in pursuing peace in good faith, then at best you just have a pantomime peace process, a little like the, the last phase of Palestinian-Israeli talks, where um, you're going through the motions, but um, everyone knows that the decision, you know, the fix is already in. And, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think maybe if, if the, um, you know, United, like, if um, what the future posture of the United States was going to be in the conflict uh, seemed to be at, at, at stake, that calculus might uh, change, uh, although I, I, I do take your larger point that the uh, the left, such as it is, you know, the, and I certainly know what you mean when you say there isn't one, because uh, we're, you know, mostly talking about um, writers and journalists, academics, um, you know, there's, there's certainly in terms of a, in terms of a left with a, with a real social base uh, that uh, has has a significant amount of power to intervene in the situation. I mean, unfortunately right now we really don't have one of those, um, you know, and, and, and we're certainly not at a, you know, like even, even if you cast the broadest possible net, uh, to, uh, to include, um, you know, the handful of members of Congress who are very ambiguously aligned with those forces that I just mentioned, um, still has very little influence on what the American state does, unfortunately. Uh, I, I guess I would just just to sort of wrap this up a little bit. I mean, I, I would say to to Scott on on that last question specifically, um, and you know, well, I guess to also bring it back to the previous question about you know sort of having a specifically anti-capitalist thing. I mean, I I do think that you know once we develop a, an actual left. Uh, 
you know, with a base in the working class and a, at a, a position to, you know, in a position to have a significant impact on, um, on what happens in real world politics, et cetera, then, you know, certainly the horizon of my politics is, you know, raising those questions about capitalism. But I think right now, even sort of, um, you know, I was thinking of the scene in Kill Bill where Uma Thurman has, is trying to wiggle her big toe. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, if the, if decimating the crazy 88 in the club in Tokyo at the end of the movie is, 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 uh, overcoming capitalism, uh, then the sort of mildest social democratic, uh, advances or, or being able to, uh, or being able to like actually exert meaningful pressure on U.S. foreign policy might be wiggling your big toe. And, uh, and, and that unfortunately is still aspirational. But, um, but I, I do, I do think that. I, I guess to sort of say something a little bit more concrete in answer to Scott's question, I think that the problem with the appeasement stuff is that uh, even though I've already indicated that I don't, I don't, you know, I don't celebrate <laughs> the uh, the shift to multipolarity. I don't, I don't, I don't think that's progress. You know, the gang war analogy that I gave earlier. Um, I, I also think it's incredibly dangerous to act like you're in a multipolar world. If you're actually in a multi act as if you're in a, you still in a unipolar world. If you're in a multipolar world and what, what disturbs me most about the sort of appeasement talk is that it, it strikes me that it does exactly that, that, you know, the idea is that the, you know, like the, the United States is in an unlimited position to impose its will on the rest of the world. And, um, and so if it's not imposing its will in ways that are maximally disadvantageous to Russia, uh, then it's, um, then, then it's rewarding it or whatever. But, but like, I think the empirical premise is just dangerously wrong. I don't think we're in a position to do that. I think, I think if anything, I think a, you know, still dominant, but definitely declining empire, you know, I mean, like the can, should be more in the business of of trying to um, of trying to to minimize harm from uh, from from conflicts that it can't uh, it can't fully uh, fully control. And it's um, you know I, I would just recommend on this. I was just reading this the other day. It came out a little while back. Our friend Daniel Bessner did a um, uh, was interviewed by by uh, Branko Marchetich and Jacobin on. Uh, Realism in foreign policy. Uh, so if you just if you just Google Jacobin realism, uh, Daniel Bessner, you'll find it right away. And you know he has a lot of thoughtful things to say about the ways in which like what realist foreign policy thinkers uh, say is it ultimately at odds with uh, with a you know like socialist worldview that assumes that we can in fact in the long term use reason to remake society for the better or whatever, but also about the things that realism gets importantly right. And I think that, that I think uh, just kind of moralizing this, just, just making it a question of, well, if you disapprove of the bad things that other powers do hard enough, then you will of course approve of whatever the sort of maximalist U S posture could be in response to it. I think, um, I think misses the lessons that you can learn from, from the realist tradition in a big way that like that, that we're just not in a, you know, that it's whether or not it would be desirable. It's just not the case that there's, there's some button the U S can press that is um, Russia is properly punished. And, um, and, and that has only good consequences, not bad ones, you know? So I think you do have to, to, to live in the messy world that you're, you're living in. And, and then the question is, what are the different decisions that uh, the United States could make that are more in the interests of um, that, you know, that, that have, you know, more and less danger for different people who are affected by those decisions, you know, ultimately from our perspective as socialists for the, you know, more or less danger to the objective positions of the international working class uh, in terms of people, dying in wars or freezing to death due to energy shortages, et cetera. So uh, that would be my, uh, that would be, that would be my big thought about that. Uh, Kuba, uh, I do want to wrap up in the next minute or two, but, but is there anything you want to kind of say to sort of cap off the discussion? I would just, 
urge everyone to uh, look at this conflict um, from not only a kind of international elite, um, you know, one could say sub Rosa conspiracy theory, um, covert maneuvering uh, perspective, or from a grand politics um, establishment, um, what you read in the New York Times perspective, but uh, also consider what um, each step looks like uh, on the ground. The one risk about zooming out too far when uh, analyzing conflicts is you lose the agency and the role of um, local forces in um, actually shaping uh, events on the ground. Every time you reduce developments to um, decisions made in Langley or the Kremlin, uh, you uh, miss out on the fact that um, Azov Battalion and the Ukrainian far right, they have a voice, they have a say, they have um, mobilized uh, cadres, they've got muscle, they have weapons, they have resources. Uh, the Ukrainian state, um, which is not co-congruent uh, with the Ukrainian far right, also has resources and interests. Uh, Zelensky has a vote. Um, the even within the Western alliance, you have countries that are more and or less um, attached to uh, the uh, prolonging the conflict. Hungary being, of course, uh, an example of a country that's within the NATO fold, but has a very ambivalent role and a very ambivalent set of interests. So, um, don't there there are ways in which you can look at this systematically, but um, don't neglect the uh, local forces at work because um, otherwise everything gets reduced to a different set of um, elite games. Uh, that is well said. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Kuba. Uh, Silver, I'm afraid we're just not going to have time to get to you today, uh, but, uh, you know, call it at the beginning of the next one of these. And, uh, and I'm, I'm happy to, uh, to take you then. Uh, thank you everybody else for listening. Thank you to Cuba for coming on. Check him out on This is Revolution. I'm going to be back on tomorrow, uh, with Bronco Marchetich, uh, to, uh, talk a little bit, uh, about, um, uh, about Elon Musk, uh, now that we're, uh, uh, you know, take a, uh, take a break from talking about, uh, mass death. And, uh, and hardship to, uh, to talk about mere tomfoolery. So, uh, looking forward to that. That's going to be tomorrow at three Eastern. I, uh, 